You're listening to a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. If you want to listen to us in real time, you can stream our show live weekdays at 9 a.m. Central. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News, and this is the next conversation in our Women of Faith series. If you're catching the series for the first time, you can find all of our Women of Faith shows in one place. Google NPR News with Carrie Miller and Women of Faith, and all of the shows will pop up on one page. And if you've been listening all the way through the series, thank you. Really appreciate that. And you know that I'm interviewing women who are energized and activated by some of the most urgent spiritual and philosophical questions of the day. So here's podcast producer Misha Youssef on the power of hearing Muslim Americans reflect on all of the dimensions of their ordinary lives. One of the major goals of the podcast is to take responsibility as Muslims of telling our own stories, even if those stories are not the common Muslim stories. We are finally in a time that as fraught as things may be, as confusing it may be to be both Muslim and American and a million other things, we can tell our stories. Here's Lutheran pastor Emmy Kegler on testing the margins of her faith. Just because you're the only person that seems to be asking questions in your congregation doesn't mean the questions are wrong, doesn't mean you're actually the only person asking. There are other people asking those questions, and we will consecrate them as holy for you and make space for you. Today, the Jewish practice of repentance. Stubborn denials, glim apologies, quick comebacks often define our culture idea of repentance. It's it's so familiar that even kids know a non-apology when they hear one. Check out this scene that I found in the 2018 movie Peter Rabbit. You shouldn't have to leave. I'm sorry for everything that I did, and I love you, B. Aww. Ugh. You tried to kill them. You blew up their home. You blew up my home. Because I got caught up in everything. You know, I got caught up in our fight. Our fight? You're still going on about this. Pathetic. Come on, Betty, let's go. (laughs) So, So what characterizes authentic repentance? As our guest joins us, I'd like to hear your thoughts and your experience with this. Do you know genuine repentance when you see it, when you hear it? What does it look like? Have you ever had to offer genuine repentance or receive it. Talk to me about it this morning as we begin our conversation. 651-227-6000-800-242-2828. I see a lot of you are tweeting on this. I love that. It's at Carrie, K-E-R-R-I-M-P-R. Again, the question for the hour, do you know genuine repentance when you see it and hear it? How would you characterize it? Have you ever had to offer it? What was that experience like? 651-227-6000-800-242-2828, anywhere in the five-state area, and on Twitter, at Carrie NPR. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg is a writer. She's a rabbi in residence at an organization committed to nourishing leaders in the economic justice field, and she's the author of Nurturing the Wow. She joins us outside of Chicago, Illinois. And Rabbi, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. And may I use your first name for the rest of the hour? Is that all right? 
Ah, uh, sure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Really good to have uh, you. On actually, the show. Rabbi Ruttenberg. Okay, I, that would be great. That Thank would be you. better. All right, no or problem. Or Rabbi, or whatever. Yeah, uh, Rabbi. I get nah, the sense. Call me Danya. Whatever. Okay. Whatever you like. <laughs> I get the sense in reading about the Jewish concept of repentance that that it's not about this idea of erasure of the harm that was committed. It's not a, and now we will wipe the slate clean as if it never happened. So so talk to me about that sense of what we're actually doing when we're practicing repentance and, and the Jewish concept of that. So the word in Hebrew that we use to talk about the work of repentance, and it is work, is tshuva, which means literally returning. So it's about returning back to that place that you need to be, where you should have been all along, maybe. Um, and there's a sense that you have gone off the path of of righteousness, of goodness, of uh, acting with full integrity in the world, and that you need to come back and that there's some work to do to get back to that place. But it's not just that. Um, when we talk about even atonement, which is a thing that is uh, sort of in some ways the final step of this work. It's about what happens between you and God at the end of all of your work of repentance. Um, the word is kapara, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Mm-hmm. And that means covering over. It doesn't. It's there's nothing's erased. Nothing's wiped clean. There's a sense of uh, picture maybe a book with a lot of uh, troubling things written in some of the pages, and then you get to turn the page, and there's a a fresh page where you can start moving forward in a in a new way. But we're not erasing anything that was written before. Uh, we're just giving you a chance to move forward. So I, I want to make sure I understand this. I I thought of repentance and atonement as two separate. Practices. In fact, I guess yeah. I think of repentance coming first and atonement being the long discipline of atoning for whatever you're repenting for. Do, do I have that reversed or mixed up? That's, that's not really how we think about it in Judaism. So the work of repentance is to get you to a place. Uh, first of all, repentance is a good in its own right. It's not a thing to do so that you can get the cookie <laughs> at the end. It's mm-hmm. what you need to do in order to repair the harm you have caused, in order to uh, get to a place of wholeness and transformation. It is not easy. There are no quick fixes. I'm sure we'll get into it. There are a lot of very difficult, uh, involved steps in order to do this work of repentance. And repentance is the lifelong work. That is the thing that you need to do and do again and do again every time you make choices. Um, First, you need to repair the harm you've done. And then every time you're given the opportunity to make a choice, you can choose repentance or not. Um, And there is also a a theological state of atonement that God won't atone you for interpersonal harm if you have not made it right with the other person. Mm. And God won't atone you for stuff between you and God. Think about, you know, sort of things that are happen in the more ritual space. Um, If you break the Sabbath alone in your house and nobody's there, nobody sees it, victimless crime, that's about you and God. Um, but that doesn't happen unless you do the real work of repentance and transformation. Got it. Um, so this this sense of getting to turn the page to a clean page doesn't happen if you're not putting in your own time and labor. I, 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 we have a lot of calls, so I want to go to the phones here in just a second. But I, I want to come back to what you said about getting the cookie. I, I, there, therein is the 
it's uncomfortable to be in a in a place in a situation where I know I need to repent and then begin the the practice of atoning. And so I just want to shortcut that. Right. I want to do whatever I have to do to get past this uncomfortable feeling of knowing that I've done some kind of harm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you what do you, what do you say about being able to just kind of sit in the uncomfortability of that and then the value of that? Uh, I mean, this is what my tradition mandates. And I think this is, you know, I think we've got it really right. There are places where I will critique, uh, you know, some traditional texts and what they tell people. There's there's space in, in, in my tradition for that critique. But here, I think we've nailed it. Um, it's really tempting to want to skip over the hard part because it doesn't feel nice. <laughs> you feel embarrassed. You feel shameful. You don't want to actually admit to people that you did the thing. You don't want to. You just don't want to. Right. But. <laughs> All of the steps of repentance in my tradition are really about pushing you into that discomfort. Ah. You have to face full on what you did. Uh, There's a step of public confession that if you did something harmful to somebody else, you need to own it publicly and – Ouch. I read that as proportional, right? If you say something racist in a staff meeting, you don't need to put it on your public Instagram, but you do need to own it to the everybody who was who was there that you know that you did something and you're taking full responsibility for it, right? There's a whole step around um, really doing the work to understand the impact of your actions. Um, there are a lot of steps around uh, about around transforming, around working very hard to become the kind of person who, when faced with the opportunity to do the exact same problematic thing a second time, Mm -hmm. makes a different choice. But Mm -hmm. it has to happen organically, right? You need to be different already uh, because you've worked out what was it that made you need to say that thing or do that thing, whether it's therapy, whether it's rehab, whether it's deep introspection, prayer. You know, we can go through a list of ways that you can do that work, but um, you have to kind of face what happened head on <laughs> and and try to become the kind of person who doesn't do that. And it's not easy and it's not fun. Uh, Paul, who uh, tweets as Belgian friar, says there are signs of repentance to be sure, but genuine repentance must be marked by such a deep internal awakening. This is just what Rabbi Ruttenberg was saying, that I can only verify it within myself. To seek to verify repentance in another is a dangerous exercise. To the phones to Chris in Minneapolis Chris, it sounds like you've had some experience with this. You are brave to call. Thank you. I mean, just just listening to her just now, I was like thinking, yeah, exactly. Everything she said, I totally agree with. You have to allow yourself to go to this really sad, really scary, self-exposing place and you know, deal with those thoughts and dig in and let it happen and try to figure out why did I do something so wicked bad or how could I do that? And yeah, what the other guy just wrote too is that truly, you know, you're the only one that would really know it. Um, But again, I think that with true repentance, well, the scripture says, you know, like a broken and contrite spirit, 
mm. of great worth in the sight of the Lord. And that's part of true repentance is, you know, where you've just allowed God and your own spirit to just search and go look at that shit. Look at, oops, sorry. <laughs> I think we've got the message here. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. What do you make of that, Rabbi? I I agree with with both uh, both folks completely that you ha- it is it is hard. You have to do the work. It is uncomfortable. Um, and truly, the only person who really knows if they have done the work of repentance, if they've done tshuva, is the person themselves. And yet I will say that very often um, a person's actions do speak for themselves, um, that how someone is talking, the things that they say and do, the choices that they make often can give you a sense of what their priorities are. And I I can give you some examples if you want. Um, Yes. So – on the one hand, you look at somebody like Louis C.K., who offered, you know, kind of a narcissistic apology when it first came out mm-hmm. that he had um, abused women sexually. Yep. Um, you know, and it was very – it was a lot of focus on sort of projecting his feelings onto what they must have been thinking. And it was not – there was not um, that work, the accounting of the soul, as we talk about it. Um, was already was not present when he was already opening his mouth, and since then he's made several forays back into the limelight, into the fame. The jokes he's been telling have made it clear that he really still doesn't understand what he did and why it matters so much. He seems very angry, <laughs> um, and, but even you know, even initially, even six months ago, uh, it was clear that if if you really got what you had done. And how you would harm these women and, as a side effect, also harm their careers, um, running straight back to the fame and the money and feeling <sighs> entitled to that wouldn't be – you know, like, you don't go well, back to the place where, where you feel tempted it, to to abuse in the first do it place. Again. Right? You, know, you go away from the ego stroking. You'll go away from the props for a minute to do the work. The, so that's the, one example. I mean, the, hmm? the other thing about the way he handled this – and this, of course, we've done whole conversations about this – but – it, it, there was so much of the this is how there there was so much of the this is how it made me feel and mm-hmm. I, there was a real there was not a turning outward there was real still kind of a navel gazing focus that it, re, it remained all about him right. i think that's what a lot of women sensed you know when they said go back try again which right. he hasn't and Right. And the, so much of the work of Chuva, and this you see this echoed in, in some ways in restorative justice work, um, is really about the perpetrator actually getting it, getting what they did and getting the impact and letting it hit them like a full ton of bricks. Um, so I want to give you a, a positive example, since the <laughs> negative examples abound mm-hmm. of, of people who offered perfunctory exa- uh, apologies, who don't really want to do the work, who let their publicists write the thing for them, but they didn't. they haven't actually – spent the time. Um, one of my favorite examples is a man named Rabbi Yosef Blau, who a, a long time ago served on a rabbinic court um, that gave permission to a man who was um, was abusing teenagers. Um, and this was, you know, several decades ago. Uh, they gave they let him basically go back to working with teenagers. Um, wow. And then this guy, the, the guy they let back is now in jail. Um, but th- 
it, you know, it was a different time. He was a different generation. He finally got what he had done and what he had enabled and how much harm he had unleashed onto, you know, people's lives. And he has spent the rest of his life writing, speaking, advocating on behalf of victims of sexual violence and working really, really hard to try to move the Orthodox community. And I think he's, he's done real work here uh, towards protecting victims, potential victims in terms of uh, taking abuse seriously. He literally has made um, this repair work his life's work and he, he'll never be able to fix it for the, the kids who were harmed. Ever. And I mean, and to he be clear, knows that he was a member of the he's not the perpetrator, obviously. He Correct. was just a, a decision maker who made the wrong choice and it was deeply dangerous and harmful to right. have made he, that he, choice. He enabled, but as we all know, the enablers, the people who are complicit, often do as, as you know at least as much damage when they know that something is happening. <laughs> they don't care because it benefits them in some way. In his case, it was an you know not innocent, but it was a mistake. You know, it was a mistake. He he really didn't understand something. But once he got it, he has uh, literally don't don't devoted. Excuse me. Devoted every waking moment to trying to make the world safer, um, and that's what someone who's doing real chuva, real repentance work, like that's how a person behaves. They understand what a big deal it was that they did a thing, and they that work of repair and accountability and and just trying to have less harm in the world is something that matters to them. I have so many things to ask you about that, but we also have a lot of people that want to get in on the conversation. If you just joined us this morning, our Women of Faith series continues with Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. We're talking with her because she writes and thinks a lot about this. You can hear that in the conversation about the concept of repentance, what it is, how it is not displayed, demonstrated, the genuine article very often in our culture and why that is. It is deeply difficult. It puts you in a vulnerable position. You may know this if you've if you've seen genuine repentance, maybe you've had to offer it. Maybe you've had to receive it. That's not the most comfortable experience either. What was it like when you experienced the giving of it, the uh, receiving of it, the knowledge of what repentance means? 651-227-6800-242-2828. And on Twitter at Carrie NPR, where Lauren says, Genuine repentance for me means apologizing and actually sitting in your emotions, reflecting, and not just looking for an immediate forgiveness from the other person. Here's another listener who says, listening to the show, to me, I've seen genuine repentance at times with people who are willing to admit how they caused harm, fix the harm if at all possible, and they work toward changing that behavior. Also a big Mm -hmm. fan of Chuva to the phones here to Emily in Minneapolis. Hi, Emily. Thanks for waiting. Hi. 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 Thank you for taking my call. What's your experience with this? My experience is having to offer genuine repentance um, and experiencing that vulnerability and that discomfort and then having it not be accepted. Ah. Um, this is an interpersonal relationship with somebody I was very close to for years who I ended up hurting um, through some circumstances. And 
when she didn't accept what I had to offer, which was very genuine, um, I came to the realization that I think our society primes us to expect that when we say sorry, that makes the problem go away. Mm. Kind of what you were talking about getting cookie before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but grappling with not being necessarily given the opportunity to go from repenting to that atonement process um, and just kind of really reflecting on what that meant for me and how to process that so that I could still, in my own way, try to make amends for what had happened. And, and were you able to, Emily? I wondered if that stopped the, you know, the process right there when she said, nope, not accepting that. It, for a while, um, I think it did on my end. I kind of came to the realization that I did what I could between the two of us and allowing her to move on and heal on her own was at that point the best thing that I could do. And she is, from what I know, in a better place now. And I'm still working on, you know, trying to be the best person that I can in my own way. But yeah, the relationship just never really came back together. And that's something that I just had to accept yeah. Rabbi, I heard you saying yes when you heard her describing yes. how she went forward. Why? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I want to give Emily full props. It sounds like she really understands what this what this it what this work is and what it isn't. And I think she's absolutely right that our society does have this sense of you know, but I said sorry, you know, kind of. <laughs> And then you're entitled forgiveness. Nobody is ever entitled to forgiveness. Um, Judaism teaches that if someone, if, if you go and make sincere, right, you first you you make amends, right? You try to um, repair whatever needs to be repaired. If you stepped on somebody's foot, you should pay their doctor bill. If it's you know if there are things that that can be compensated and and you know repair, we can talk about reparations. You know uh, that needs to happen first. And once the doctor bill for hurting somebody's foot has been paid, then the sincere, I actually understand what I did, apology uh, needs to come. And uh, our tradition teaches that um, if somebody doesn't accept your apology the first time, you go back a second time. And if you they don't accept your apology a second time, you go back a third time. And depending on the situation, maybe you go back many times after that. But generally, three times is the limit. Jeez, um, that is hard. Because wow. somebody, because as Emily noted, sometimes the other person isn't in a place to be able to hear and to be willing. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring my own kind of feminist lens to Maimonides, and Maimonides is is the medieval Jewish philosopher who really um, codified a lot of how we think and talk about repentance in Judaism. And I bring a, a little bit of a feminist lens, a contemporary trauma lens, and note that there are some things that, you know, sometimes it is harmful to the victim to hear from the perpetrator. And the most uh, repair-minded thing a perpetrator can do is to leave them alone to heal. And showing up and being like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is not uh, actually going to improve anything. And so that's a thing to keep in mind. But in situations, even when apologies are appropriate, the idea that somebody might need to hear from you a couple times is, I think, true of human relationships. Um, And it's also true that real repentance work doesn't rely on being forgiven. It feels nice. It is better to have that sense of closure (laughs) and, and wholeness, right? But if you 
or the person who's done harm, you have to keep your eye on your own blue book and focus on making sure that you have done everything you can to try to heal the situation within your power and know that there are things that a person may never be in a place to forgive you. And you have to be okay with that. You are not entitled to forgiveness. And and forgiveness and reconciliation aren't the same thing, right? Reconciliation mm-hmm. is about returning to some sort of relationship and whether it goes back to how it was or you start something new. Uh, a person may, may be able to say, I forgive you and I never want to see your face again. And that's also that's also a thing. Just a question about chuva, because mm-hmm. for anybody who's gotten into the discussion a little late here, they'll hear us using that term. And I was reading a Jewish scholar's uh, actual kind of definition, uh, or I guess interpretation, of what shuva is, and he said that if you translate it, it actually means turning, mm-hmm. which made me think that in a way you're doing. In the practice of shuva, you're doing kind of a moral circuit, right? Yes. You're you're not just moving forward, check, did that, on to the next thing. You are coming back full circle to say, as I think you said at the beginning, what led me to this? That is essential to the practice of of shuva or repentance. Is that is Absolutely. that right? I think that's I think that's fair. Um, so the word the the root of the word tshuva, which uh, for those just tuning in, is repentance in Judaism. It's the work of repentance. The root is shuv, which means to come back, right? To turn around. Um, but it's also an answer. So if you ask a question, you know, when if you say I have a question for you, what's the answer? Uh, the an- the word you'd use is tshuva in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's all of these things. It's about coming back to – it's about coming back. It's about returning. It's about turning around. It's about um, – it's really about returning um, and and trying to figure out where where you got off the path and what you need to do to get back on it. Danya, uh, before we go back to the many calls we have here, what about what Susie was asking about this idea of atonement being – connected to consciousness and that it goes deeper than ego. What say you on that? Okay. There, there's there's a lot in there that I want to unpack a little bit. Um, so in Judaism, forgiveness is a thing that other people do for you. Atonement is something that happens between you and God. It's a theological category. So first of all, when people talk about like, oh, you know, I talked to this person. They're OK. I'm atoned. That's 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 not how, at least in my tradition, we, we use that language. Um, so that's one thing I want to say. Number two, the work of, of repentance is absolutely – and repentance is the work that I, the person who harmed, did. Atonement is the thing that God could grant me. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely there is a th- a place of going beyond ego um, and into if you want to be actually transforming to become the kind of person who makes different choices, there's a a profound internal thing that needs to happen. Um, And then the last piece of this is really, you know, about what kind of theology you have. There are people who talk about God as, uh, you know, the whole of consciousness. Mm Mm-hmm. And something greater, the the great everythingness and maybe even more than that. And we don't know. Um, and if that is your theology, I you know, the sense of atonement as 
doing the work that you need to do on your small, individual, tiny, egotistical self to um, to kind of get over that ego, some of that ego place, and to connect with the big bigness um, and with the great everythingness that is. I mean, that is absolutely one way. Um, that you could be thinking about it. Geez, I'm glad I gave you time in the newscast. To... <laughs> that was good. I, 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 that's the answer I would have given you 10 minutes ago. Uh, to Mary in Minneapolis. Hi, Mary. Um, Hi. You were on the receiving end of this. Is that right? Actually, I said no. You did. To someone mm. who asked for forgiveness. Wow. And it was in a Christian context and in the context of a marriage where... My ex-husband would do something again and again, repeat offender, if you will. And every single time, because we were in this, you know, quote-unquote Christian relationship, it was expected that I would forgive him. Mm. And I did over and over again until I came to a point where I realized I am carrying this heavy burden of feeling just as though somehow um, my, my husband at the time expected it, and walked away sort of scot-free, mm. feeling great. And I felt the burden. So it was as mm-hmm. if I was carrying the burden of this whole relationship and everything that was wrong and damaging and happening, until finally I said no. And I, all of a sudden I felt some empowerment. Mm. I realized that he had things to do that had nothing to do with just saying, oh, gee, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And and it was empowering for me to say that and to walk away with my own work to do and let him deal with his own mess. Does this that make is, sense? Yeah, this is such a good dimension of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, what what's your role when you see the person doing the act repenting, doing the act repenting? Then what, Rabbi? How do you handle that? So uh, this is why I keep talking about transformation. Uh, Maimonides defines perfect tshuva, the perfect Having completed the work of repentance, when you get the opportunity to do the same harmful thing and you make a different choice, right? And somebody who who did it the first time and the second time and the third time is not – like they haven't done any work. And certainly – I mean, you know – uh, whether I don't, I personally don't think you're obligated to forgive somebody even if they have done the work of tshuva. You're definitely not if they haven't. Um, and Maimonides even says that someone who apologizes for doing the thing uh, and says they're really sorry and, and deep in their heart they know they're, they're not really sorry. They kind of know they're going to try to do it again. Um, is like somebody who tries to immerse in the ritual bath holding a lizard. <laughs> so you, which is a non-kosher animal. So you cannot enter the ritual bath, which is sort of this profound uh, ritual site in Judaism, mm-hmm. holding a creepy crawly thing. Like it doesn't – you don't come out of that – that the ritual bath does not do the thing it's supposed to do if you're holding something creepy crawly. And so this sense of like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, just forgive me when kind of you know you're not – you haven't really done the work. You haven't faced – the darkness that led you there in the first place. You haven't done uh, some of the things to try to understand what brought you there, which is why I, I really believe that apology needs to be way late in the process. Oh. You're already on this path. Mm. You're already pretty far along in this transformation work before you're getting somebody – you're dragging somebody else into it, your stuff, right? Because if you, if you really aren't going to do the work and face the, the ugliness, then you're – 
going into the ritual bath with a lizard. I, so, <laughs> but, so I, I think, Danya, I think this is interesting, though, when you said apology needs to be later in the process, because, you know, mm-hmm. we're a culture where the immediate demand is. Where's the apology? Mm-hmm. As if, again, kind of some total. I mean, in our political culture, in our entertainment culture, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's... I think it's even what you've set up is even harder with this idea that I don't get to be I don't get a little bit of the catharsis that comes with an apology. And there is some catharsis with that. Mm -hmm. I have to hold that, too, as I get on the road of repentance. That's even harder. it is. And and it's supposed to be hard work. Like The whole point is this is really hard work. That, and that's why we have two distinct, as I think of them, steps in the process. One is public confession, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You post on Slack or you say in the next staff meeting, you guys, last time I was here, I said something that was really racist. And I am still reflecting to understand why that came out of my mouth. And here are some of the books I'm going to be reading. Mm. And here are some of the people. I'm going to be shutting up and listening to. And for any of you who want to tell me about how that impacted you, I want to hear, I want to listen. I'll be spending some time in therapy. Uh, and I'm going to work on this, right? You say, you confess it, you own your stuff, and then you go off and do the work. And then you come back and you can say, you know, a month, two months later, whatever, however long it takes, you know, saying something racist in a staff meeting, committing sexual assault, like how long you need for um, for the work depends on who you are, what what the thing was. Um, but you come back after you've done a bunch of the work and the work is never complete. So it's not like, great, I read three books. Now I'm, you know, immune from the white supremacy in our culture forever, right? It, that, that does not work that way. Um, but you co- after you've done a bunch of the work, then you come back and you say, okay, now I actually get what I did. Mm. <laughs> I'm really sorry. And, and it, it, it comes from a different place. It is heard in a different way. I think that's why this caller who was talking about her marriage, I think rightly, was exhibiting frustration because, you know, I'm sorry, you're supposed to forgive me, doesn't – like that's not the same thing as like, now I get what I did. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Th- you know. That guy was doing no turning, no moral circuit there. Let me grab a call here from right. Randy in Forest Lake. Hey, Randy, hi. Hey, thank you for waiting. Hi. I know it's been a while, but I'm glad you did. Uh- Great conversation. Uh, I think if your guest could speak to the uh, deep connection of repentance and vow, Mm -hmm. there's something there to uh, speaking to others, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your vow to burn your karma or to to correct the harm you've caused. And really, compassion is being able to meet another's suffering, recognizing it's your own suffering. And uh, the root of sin is uh, you missed the mark. Well, what is the mark? The mark is to love one another, or at least to not hurt one another. So as the next incident comes up where you're tempted or you may lose awareness, you you know with that vow you're not going to do that again. Mm. And in Hawaii, most of these uh, indigenous uh, cultures themselves have deep traditions in this. They call it ho'oponopono, where it's coming back to balance. Oh. You've lost your balance. Yeah. You were aiming to do good. You were aiming to at least not harm. You fell off balance. That's life. That happens. And they do this every week. It's not something that you get to say, oh, I'm sorry. Now I can move on. This stuff keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. And I think when the offender sees your commitment to changing and improving and burning karma, uh, you 
will get a softening on their side so that eventually maybe you'll get that uh, acceptance of uh, your need for their, their approval for what you've done and passing it on. How, how does that sound, Rabbi? So, I, you know, I think there's a lot uh, in, in what this caller just said that resonates with how I understand my tradition, right, that I think a lot of the harm we cause consciously or unconsciously and uh, a lot is about not recognizing that other people are as important and holy and created in the divine image as we are and that their pain matters as much as our pain and that a lot of the work of coming back is about really trying to get that again and again and again. And we all forget and we all need to remember again and again and again. Um, that's This empathy piece is really important. Um, and, yeah, I mean, there is a sense we do talk about resolving to to do differently. Um, we don't use the language of vows. That's like a really – like Jews are like, we're really, really careful with vows because uh, if you make a promise to God and then something happens and you can't fulfill it, you're in trouble. Um <laughs> But we do this this thing about this being a regular practice is really important. Um, the Talmud teaches that you need to repent one day before your death. Well, how do you know when you're going to die? Oh, you don't. So you need to repent every day. Um, and so that's a, a deep part of how we, we understand this work too. Uh, call here from Ellie in Crosby. Hi, Ellie. Glad you stayed on the line. Thanks. Um, yes. Um, I'm calling because I'm in a in a 12-step program, mm-hmm. and uh, part of the program we um, you know admit our faults and we make amends to those that we have harmed. Um, I have made several amends to my kids, and which has also involved uh, changing, moving forward, trying to be a better person. You know, I've been clean and sober for many years. And yet I can't get any forgiveness or any realization from uh, two of my three children. They don't understand the changes and, and what all of that meant. And I'm wondering how, how, do, I, how do I go um, back to um, them? How many times do I <laughs> try to have them forgive me? Yeah, and maybe how you add some new facet to that to that discussion so it doesn't sound like you are just back again with the same the same ideas. Yeah. Rabbi? This is tough. So I I, I mean I do want to say the of a kind of the contemporary concepts around this work. Um, the 12 steps is one of the ones that has I think has the most elements in common with Judaism. Um, and so there's a lot there's a lot there in in really taking that work seriously that I really uh, admire. Um and uh, you know, I wonder. I wonder a what's happening in that apology. Um, what you know? Sometimes people, and I'm I'm not saying that this is what the caller is doing, but generally, sometimes people try to apologize at a person. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. like here, here my here my apology, <laughs> um, as opposed to this empathetic, bringing back this word, and kind of connective thing about really, you know, kind of having it be a conversation and really trying to uh, – the person who, le- letting the person who has been hurt have space to really talk about the impact for them and talk about the places that feel unsettled and unresolved um, and painful. And to hear that, and it may be sometimes um, – 
people who are trying to do this work kind of decide for the person that they hurt what was the harmful thing. Oh. And it could be that, like, actually, I it see. wasn't the tone of voice. It was the fact that you used this word. It wasn't this. It was this other thing. Um, and I think the the reason for the coming back again and again and, um, and our literature also talks about, like, sometimes you bring people with you. And there's a sense of, like, this is, may, may need to be a communal process. There may need to be other people. You know, if it's just you and me and there's a power dynamic, it might – always be a little fraught and maybe if I feel like if I've got people who have my back and who uh, are on my team, I'll be more able to to listen uh, or I'll have witnesses that you did say that thing that you're denying that you said or, you know, uh, but maybe it needs to be a, a communal process, which is also what restorative justice does. Um, maybe there just needs to be a space of more open curiosity and listening and less like now I'm apologizing and more like <laughs> – Let's let's sit down and talk about this impact. You know, I'm struck by I had a conversation yesterday, a very different one with a writer about the sharing of family stories and, and how mm-hmm. they shape the idea of, you know, identity within a family and then outside identity of the family. And we spend so much time talking about vulnerability. That is that's at the essence of a lot of what we're talking about today, Danya, mm-hmm. that. The ability to, as we said, withstand that uncomfortable time of being vulnerable in knowing that you did the wrong and then letting the other people, I mean, if you're in this situation, letting the people to whom you are trying to, you know, make repairs, see you in that vulnerable place. For me, that's probably the hardest thing of all. Yeah. It is so vulnerable. It is so vulnerable. But that's that's the work. It is really about having to be able to walk into that space of vulnerability and to just sit there. And it feels terrible. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, I, I now I've become a bit of a, a chuva evangelist. I take this repentance work very seriously. And I... I'm sure there there are things that I need to still uh, do. I try really hard to practice what I preach, and it is uncomfortable, and I hate it when I'm the one doing when I'm the one in that space. But but that's that's also I, I mean it's what the work demands, and it's also part of the transformation, right? If I said something harmful, and I get to hold on to my power and my sense of ego and security and sense of self and this narrative that I'm the good guy at all times, um, I'm n- never going to really change. Yeah. You know, I, I played that clip at the beginning of the of the show uh, with the, the movie clip from Peter Rabbit because I thought mm-hmm. this is something that kids, they see a lot of examples of this good and bad from the time yep. they're absorbing pop culture. So... I think this call from Susan that we got really goes to this. She says, I wanted to ask about teaching chuva to kids. We teach mm-hmm. kids to say, I'm sorry. How do we teach them? And she writes the heart attitude of this. I mean, really understanding this, maybe from, you know, from a fairly young age. What do, what do you teach about that? So I've got three young kids. Um, and I, I don't know that I have all of the answers here. And I think there are probably people who can uh can add to this in intelligent ways insightful ways uh, one thing is by modeling it right you have to walk the walk when i 
screw up and I lose my temper or what, whatever with them. I try to do the work of chuva and to in as many of the uncomfortable, uh, you know, unsettling ways for me um, and to own the harm that I did to them and to center them and their needs. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing is just that kids most of all learn by watching us. And the other is that even from a very young age, I've taught my kids to center the person who has been harmed and not themselves. Right. Well, you, you, One kid hits the other kid and it's really easy to be like, say, I'm sorry. And it's like, I'm sorry. You know, and the kid is still in pain and crying. Right. That doesn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. So my kids know that if something goes awry, yeah, and we work as many of it. They struggle with impulse control because they are small children and we work on it. And, you know, it's all work in progress. Um, first question to the person who is upset or hurt is, are you okay? Second question is, what do you need? Mm-hmm. And sometimes what the kid needs is to be alone. Sometimes the kid needs a hug or a kiss or help getting up or whatever, right? But, like, make sure that they have what they need. That is basically the amends work, right? Um, You had to pay to the doctor because I stepped on your foot. Here's my money, right? You fell down because I pushed you. Like, here, I'm going to help you get up and, you know, give you a hug and dust you off. Um, And then I'm really sorry. You know, can I give you a hug? Can I, you know, all of that. But the the first couple questions are really about centering the person who was hurt because that's the most important person in this interaction. I have to say, hearing that you still struggle with this, I think, is gives me hope because, I mean, you you've you have this. You, I can tell in this hour long conversation of how uh, how you've delved pretty deep into the concept of this, and yet you say, "Yep, human, do it, miss it sometimes." have to come back around to say, what is this? What does this really look like for me? The expert on repentance. It's 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 good. Do you know why I, mean, I say that? It gives hope for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I'm a human person. I was raised by imperfect human beings and had stuff imprinted. And I've, you know, logged in many, many, many hours in therapy and, you know, <laughs> Done the EMDR, all of that, but like, I, still, I'm a human person living in the world, and I screw up, and I make mistakes, and I live in a white supremacist culture, and I'm ignorant sometimes, and you know, like there are things. However much active work I try to do to to move through the world, not only not harming, but actively trying to create a space of wholeness and repair. Like I, I have internalized a lot of the same toxic stuff that everybody has and like we all are human beings we screw up and the question is are you going to take it as an opportunity to learn or are you going to insist on doing more harm you were so perfect for this show thank you thank you so much (laughs) this is this is really um well it's a really uplifting discussion thank Mm. you danya thank you Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, she is part of our Women of Faith series. You can find all of the shows in one place. Here's the easy way to do it. Just Google NPR News with Carrie Miller and Women of Faith, and they'll all come up. Listen. Let me know what you think. You just heard a recording of a live radio show on NPR News. 
To add your voice to the discussion, you can call in at 800-242-2828 or tweet us at CarrieMPR. And if you miss us live, you'll find all our shows by subscribing to this podcast. You can send us your questions or comments by emailing talk at npr.org.